Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is uh, good to be together in this way uh, this Sunday afternoon. I should tell you up front by way of gratitude to those who have just led us in worship. It is, uh, at last check, 90 degrees here in this room. Uh, so it is warm, and those who have just led us in worship deserve a great big word of gratitude for their ministry to us. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to begin reading in verse 31 down through verse 46, and as strange as it may seem, I, I actually want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together, uh, stand as an expression of respect, stand as an expression of attention uh, to the Holy Word of God. In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, we read these words, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word, this is the voice of God. Now, 
Oh, Lord, would you please give us grace to hear your voice above all the shouting, above all the screaming voices of this hour. Help us to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you are standing, you may be seated. As we come to this text of Scripture, for those of you who are visiting with us, you should know that we have been preaching our way through the entire Gospel of Matthew, and we come to this text today, which is something of a climax to sermons and messages that have been preached over the last two or three weeks. The words which we have just read together present to us a fearful description of the coming judgment, what we might rightly call the great separation. The Scriptures teach us, Matthew's Gospel teaches us, this text teaches us that the King is coming. The King is coming, and when He comes, He will decide our destiny. The King is coming to decide our destiny, and what we are doing now proves where we will be going then. The King is coming to decide our destiny, and what we are doing now proves where we will be going then. Just so you have a sense of how our study will unfold this week and next, let me outline it like this. This week, uh, we're going to look at the coming of the king, the audience of the king, the action of the king, and then the words of the king with application along the way. And then next week, we're going to come back to this text and let it ask and answer three really important questions. First, what do Jesus' words say about how he relates to us? Second, what do Jesus' words say about what he expects from us? And then third, what do Jesus' words say about what is ahead of us? I believe it will be, will be best served as we come to this text of Scripture by working our way carefully through it today. So let's, let's begin by looking together at the coming of the King. If your Bibles are open, you will find this in verse 31, Matthew 25 and verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice the sequence of truths that are here. First of all, the Son of Man is coming. Notice Jesus says, when, not if. When the Son of Man comes. There is no doubt about this. There is no uncertainty about this. This world has not seen the last of Jesus Christ. As much as this world would love to pronounce good riddance over Jesus, the truth is that Jesus is still alive, he is still in the present, and he is all about the future. Jesus is not done yet. He is not finished with what he intends to do. He is not just a man of history past, 
He is the king of history future. This is one of the great, great convictions, the enduring convictions of authentic Christian faith. Jesus Christ is coming again, and that provides for us the center upon which to fix all of our hope. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in ideologies. Our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. As, as Christians, as Christians, we, we live in the world and we love the people of the world and we try to win the world to Christ and we try to beautify and enrich the world and we try to do justice and love mercy in this world, but we are not citizens of this world and we do not live for this world or with any vain hope in this world. Our hope is in the literal, physical, visible, powerful, triumphant coming again of Jesus Christ the Lord who will alone make all things right. The Son of Man is coming. Now notice, the Son of Man is coming in His glory, in His doxa. That's the Greek word for glory. He is coming in His glory, in the outward display of His inward radiance. He will come with the shining out and the shining forth of His splendor. The marvelous majesty of His being will be on display for everyone to see the Son of Man is coming in His glory and, notice, all the angels with Him. This is going to be a great cosmic event in which the conquering and the reigning king comes in a royal parade with a whole host of angels and saints joining in the royal procession. The Son of Man is coming in His glory and all the angels with him, and finally, the Son of Man is coming in his glory, and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. He is coming, and he will sit enthroned. He will be a glorious king, gloriously enthroned. We must be ever mindful, dear child of God, we must be ever mindful brother and sister in Christ that the King is coming. The coming of the King. Notice secondly, the audience of the King. Verse 32, before Him will be gathered all the nations, all the Greek word ethnos, all the ethnicities of the world. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Before him will be gathered all the nations, all the ethnicities of the world. Time and again in Scripture, we see that God is about the nations. He is about all the ethnicities to save from every nation, those who belong to him, and then this text says, one day to judge every nation and every individual within every nation. All people from every nation will stand in his audience on that 
day, every single person from every single nation will be there. This is describing the universal cosmic judgment day. No one will be excluded. No one will be excused. Everyone will be served papers requiring their attendance. Everyone will be subpoenaed. Everyone will have to have their day in court before the judge of all the earth, and everyone will be judged based on the light and the truth they have received and how they have responded to it. This is the audience of the king. Now notice third, the action of the king. Verses 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. He will separate them from one another, some to his right and others to his left. This is describing King Jesus judging and deciding the eternal destiny of all people. This task of judgment has been entrusted by the Father to the Son. A few years later, after Jesus returned to heaven, his messenger and his apostle Paul put it like this in Acts chapter 17. In verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the death. This is the Word of God. Jesus, the great King, is going to come and separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus borrows from a common separation experience found in first century Israel, the separating of sheep and goats. We as people today, we have different forms of separation that we, and acts of separation that we engage in from time to time. I am sure that some of you have gone up in your attic and you have separated that which you were going to keep from that which you were going to throw away. Galen and I used to be very different in this way, especially in our early years. Galen, and I have permission to tell the story, Galen is a sorter and a sifter and a scrapper. She, she is somebody who loves to get rid of stuff that has no further value. I'll never forget the time during the middle of the night she woke up out of a sound sleep and sat bolt straight up in bed and just 
shouted out, I hate clutter. I hate clutter. And she lives that way. She's quick to see what isn't needed, what is no longer wanted, what has no further or lasting value, and out it goes. And by and large, this has not been a problem. And in fact, to this day, I am much more like her uh, than I used to be. The only time I can remember when it was a real problem was soon after my college days when I found out that she had thrown out my gym bag. You have to understand, this, this gym bag, this, this vinyl Adidas gym bag, I had used all through high school and all through college, basketball, tennis, every sporting event I went to and participated in, I carried that ugly blue gym bag with me. And one day I found out that she had thrown it out. She had, in an act of judgment, she had separated the, the, the valuable from that which was, in her mind, not valuable. And to the dump it went without me ever having a chance to retrieve it. We separate sometimes for greater use and separate sometimes because of the value and the joy that an object gives. But on other occasions, we separate to throw away. We separate to destroy. Jesus, one day, will separate. Uh, Dear ones, this week as I reflected on this text, my heart grew heavy. The sense of the solemn, the sense of how sobering this is. Jesus one day is going to separate. And in separating, he is going to designate one for eternal glory and another for eternal glory. Punishment. I wonder how he will do this. Will he from his throne simply look in each individual's direction and make eye contact and with that eye contact move that person to the right or to the left? How will he do this? Will he do this with words? Will he do it by name, so-and-so, to the right, this person to the left? King Jesus, the sovereign and supreme shepherd, by an act of his own sovereign judicial authority over human beings, will either with a voice of authority or a simple look of his eye, he will command a separation of all people and with perfect knowledge and justice that would never treat anyone worse than he or she deserves. He will sift the wheat from the tares. He will sort through the righteous from the unrighteous. He will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will sentence and send to an everlasting destiny as a result. I cannot imagine the sheer solemnity and fearfulness of that 
moment, especially for those who have not loved Jesus Christ, for those who have forsaken Him in this life. It will be the great separation. It will be that moment when people realize that it was true after all, and now it's too late. It turns out that for all of our distinctions and for all of the ways that we differentiate ourselves from others or others from us, at the end of the day, there will only be one dividing line in all of humanity. There will only be two groups. The whole human race will be divided into two, those who are on his right and those who are on his left, those whom he blesses and those whom he judges, those whom he welcomes into eternal life and those whom he consigns to everlasting punishment, those who go to heaven and those who do not. I couldn't help but think this week, about how we have so many divisions among us as Christians, but how on that day all of those divisions will dissolve. And so many of those people with whom we fight today are people who are going to be on the same side with us on that day. And it won't matter on that day whether we're Republican or Democrat or Independent. It will only matter how we have treated Republican and Democrat and Independent. It won't matter whether we're white or black or brown. What will matter is how we treated white or black or brown. It won't matter whether we're rich or poor. It will only matter how we treated the rich or the poor. It won't matter whether we're educated or illiterate. It will only matter how we treated each one. It won't matter the distinctions. What will matter is how we have treated each and every person in our lives. For on that day, only one division will exist. And it will be a division and it will be a wall that will never come down. It will never come down. The coming of the king, the audience of the king, the action of the king, and now the words of the king. In this scene, Jesus holds a conversation with both groups, with those on his right and those on his left. He begins with the sheep to his right, to whom he offers an invitation and an explanation, and then he turns to the goats on his left, over whom he issues a condemnation and an explanation. Let's, let's notice each in its turn. First, we see the king offer to those on his right an invitation and an explanation. The invitation is in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, what a wonderful word. Come, come. This is an invitation. This is a welcome spoken by King Jesus. Come, draw near, draw close, draw in. You are welcome. Come, come, you who are blessed by my Father, you who have been enriched 
and made happy by our heavenly Father. Inherit the kingdom. Matthew's whole gospel has been about the king and his kingdom with an open, repeated invitation to us all to pledge our discipleship allegiance to the king in this life with the promise of a kingdom in the life to come. There is a kingdom to be inherited, a kingdom of righteousness and truth and justice and grace and everlasting perfection and joy where love and wonder abound and everything is right and everything is good. Jesus says, come to those on his right. Come, inherit the kingdom. And then he adds, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, by the way, sheep, this isn't an afterthought. This isn't something the Father and I just came up with last week. No, this, this has been our intention from the moment we created the world and even beyond that, back into eternity past. All along, we've had this in mind. All along, child of God, this has been the goal that God has had for you and for me, that, that we would share with Him in His eternal kingdom of joy. This is the invitation, and what an amazing invitation it is to us. And then Jesus attaches to it an, an explanation. Look at verses 35 and 36. For... I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus says, you are, you are receiving this kingdom for or because you did these things. Jesus says, come into my kingdom prepared for you for or because you did all these things for me, because you treated me with such neighbor love and respect and care and mercy and justice. It's as if Jesus is saying, here, I want you to have this. It's, it's my way of saying thank you for all that you did for me, a kingdom prepared for you. That's his explanation for his invitation, but the thing is that his explanation doesn't really fully explain. For in fact, it generates a question in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? That's a reasonable question, given that the vast majority of people on planet earth have never seen Jesus here on earth, much less fed him or clothed him or visited him, and so Jesus offers his answer to their question in verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus' explanation is this, that by doing any of these things for even the least of our brothers, his brothers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. By doing any of these things for our brothers, we have done it 
for Christ. Kindness and mercy and generous justice toward a fellow believer is kindness and mercy and generous justice toward Jesus. Notice notice there are two things he says here. The text is pretty clear that Jesus has in mind here kindness, mercy, and justice done to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've done it to these, my brothers. His focus here, his emphasis here is on doing these things for our fellow believers. Obviously, that does not mean that we are not to bother doing these things for non-believers. It simply means that Jesus' emphasis and his focus here is on the family of faith. And so that's why we read in Galatians 6 and verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jesus wants us to have a primary concern for one another within the family of God. And notice too, the ones in his household of faith that he wants us to be sure not to miss, the least of these, my brothers. He is saying that we will be judged based upon how we have treated those whom we might consider least, the least in rank or status, the least in importance or power, the least in value or worth, the least in giftedness or usefulness, the least in stature, the least in looks or in prestige, the the least in the eyes of the world, the, the least in terms of social skills or coolness or hipness or like-me-ness. It's it's not how we treat those who are like us or those who we might perceive to be above us that says something significant about us. It's how we treat those that we're not inclined to be near or not inclined to like or that may be different from us or by this world's standards less than us. Jesus' invitation, come inherit the kingdom goes out to those who have done kindness and mercy and justice to even the least of his brothers and sisters. That is the invitation and the explanation. And all by itself, there is enough to make us search our hearts, search our lives, and ask hard questions. How are we doing? How are we doing in how we are treating the brothers and sisters of Christ and the least of these? But Jesus proceeds. His conversation then turns toward the goats where he issues a condemnation along with an explanation. The condemnations in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not Clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
This is such a fearful text of Scripture. The condemnation that Jesus issues over those to his left is the fearful opposite of his invitation to the sheep. Whereas in his invitation he said, come, in his condemnation he says, depart. Whereas in his invitation he says, you are blessed by my Father. In his condemnation he says, you are cursed. In his invitation, he says, there is a kingdom prepared for you. In his condemnation, he says, there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and by implication for you. Even as people stand on opposite sides of his throne on that day, they will spend eternity on opposite sides of his justice and of his love. Jesus issues or gives an explanation for this. He says in verses 41 through 43, he pronounces this judgment. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. In that those to his left did not feed or welcome or clothe or visit Jesus. They were judged. They were consigned to hell. They failed to be kind and merciful and just toward Christ. And for that reason they faced his judgment. And again, that explanation that Jesus gives doesn't fully explain, and so those to his left ask him this question. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. By now we get the point, don't we? When we fail to do kindness and mercy and justice to others, when we deprive them of whatever it is that is their need or is their due as fellow image bearers of God, as the redeemed with precious blood of Christ, those destined for eternal glory, as we deprive them, we deprive Jesus in a sense. In a sense, we could say that we leave Him hungry and him thirsty and him sick and him alone and him on the outside looking in. What all this means is that every day of our lives, our lives are filled with choices. Choices in how we treat and respond to people. Choices that will have eternal consequences. Jesus is coming to decide our destiny. And what we are doing now proves where we will be going then. There's an important question that comes to mind as we look at this text. Our Lord's teaching, if we are not careful in how we understand it and see it in the light of the rest of Scripture, uh, might leave us with the wrong conclusion. Is Jesus teaching here that what we do 
decides whether or not we get into heaven? Or is he teaching that what we do proves whether or not we are going to heaven? Does his teaching say that what we do decides whether or not we go into heaven? Or what we do proves whether or not we are going to heaven? You need to pay attention closely here. There's a fine line. There's a distinction that we need to make here or else we will forsake the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible teach us that we are not saved by our works? We are saved by free, undeserved grace gift alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes, the Bible teaches that, and the Bible teaches that again and again. Titus chapter 3 When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by mercy and grace alone are we saved. Or Galatians 6 or 2 and verse 16, for we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. If we try to be justified, to be accepted, to be approved by an infinitely holy God in whom there is no sin, if we try to bring our good works, our righteousness before this infinitely holy God and say, God, I am holy enough to get in. I deserve to get in. He will turn us away. For we are not justified by our works. We are justified freely. We are forgiven freely by the mercy and grace of God because Jesus bore our sins away on the cross and He rose victorious from the grave. We trust in Him alone and by grace alone we are saved. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. Remember Jesus in in Luke chapter 18, He talks about a a tax collector, a a thieving, cheating tax collector who's in the temple and, and the man is so aware of his own sin that he just beats his breast in in sorrow and in repentance. And he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. His head is bowed and his heart is broken. And he just cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he went home justified. He went home justified. All he did was believe. All he did was believe. All he did was 
believed that God was a God of mercy, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or I think of the thief and murderer on the cross who is just hours away from his death, a totally misspent life, full of sin, full of thieving and violence. And what what does this man say? Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus responds, today you'll be with me in paradise. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. This is the great consistent theme of Scripture. We are forgiven. We are accepted as a free gift of grace received by faith alone in Jesus. Well, if that's true, if we're not saved by our good works, then what is Jesus teaching here in Matthew 25? Stay with me. Follow closely. He is not talking here about how to get into heaven, but about how and you, how you and I will live if, in fact, we are going to heaven. He is talking here about the fruit of saving faith. He is talking here about what those will do who have come to sincere faith in him. They will live a life of good works. They will do these things, not in order to get into heaven, but because by grace through faith in Christ, they have already been guaranteed heaven and they have been given a new heart and that new heart has produced a new life. Thinking about it this week like this. What happens when a baby is born? What's the first thing the doctor looks for? Looks for vital signs, breathing, heart rate, pulse, blood pressure, temperature. Sometimes, tragically, those vital signs are not there, and a mother and father are left to grieve the, the loss of life and Some among us know that experience, sadly. But one thing is sure, where there is life, there are vital signs. There are evidences and proofs of life. The evidence that a baby is alive is breathing and heart rate and blood pressure and pulse. And believe me, the newborn doesn't earn his breathing, doesn't merit his heart rate or his blood pressure or his pulse. It's given freely by God. God doesn't say to the teeny tiny baby, okay, now in order to stay alive, you're going to have to earn it. You've got to earn your next breath, your next heartbeat, your next brainwave. No, birth and life are undeserved and unearned mercies. Breathing, breathing doesn't earn life, it proves life. Having a pulse doesn't merit life. It demonstrates life. So, so what are faith's vital signs? That's what Jesus is talking about here. What are the vital signs of genuine faith? Jesus says good works are to the believer what breathing, a pulse, and a heart rate are to a newborn child. Not meritorious efforts 
to earn life, but sure and certain vital signs that a life of faith has already begun. All who are alive by God-given faith will seek to do good. All who are alive in Christ will feed the hungry and tend the sick and visit the imprisoned and welcome the stranger and love and do justice to the least of these because that's what real living faith does. Good works are to the believer what breathing is to the child. A sure and a certain sign that there is life. Your works and mine earn nothing, but they prove everything. Our works, our faith's credentials, faith's proof of commitment, faith's stamp of authenticity and validation. Many of you have heard, in fact, I think I have referenced this in the past. I forget where I first heard it, but I close with this now. We'll come back to this text next week, but I close with this now. You've heard it, I think. Many have. If you were arrested for being a Christian, for being a disciple of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? This, this is what Jesus is provoking us to think about here, my friends. What is the evidence? How strong are the vital signs? For those of us who have truly come to faith in Christ, it will show, it will show in how we treat even those who are the least of these, his brothers. This text has more to say to us, much more to say to us, but for today, it has this to say to us. Let us search our own hearts and our own lives. First of all, to ask the question, have we come to faith in Christ, so that we could be justified freely by His grace. And then the second question, does my life prove the validity of my profession of faith? And if in reflection, if in meditation, if in humble introspection, your heart is troubled by the lack of fruit then fall on your knees before King Jesus even now and repent and ask him for grace to change that your faith might be proven real for that day. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Show us, O Lord, the truth from this text that we, each of us, needs to hear. And give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. Lord, help us. Amen.